Computing Broadcast, a fascinating round in three, two, one. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Fascinating Nouns. Now, if you are listening to this transmission, we are still the galaxy's most trusted source for incredible people, places, things, and ideas. Now, together we arrive at this curious nexus point, and we will explore the strange, unusual, offbeat, bizarre, intriguing, interesting, invigorating, quirky, quaint, quizzical, weird, wild, wacky, the fun, the frivolous, and the fringe, plus all the spaces in between. I am your host, Daniel J. Glenn. Hello, Fascination. Welcome to the show. So this week, we are going to tackle a topic that is a little more serious than what we normally dive into on this program, and that is the topic of homelessness, specifically Skid Row. What is it? Where is it? Where did it come from? And this topic came to me, uh, this is a very pandemic topic, because, you know, watching a lot of TV, I'd, you know, I've got my other podcasts, and i got a long list of things, but I had a taste for true crime. I got bitten by the bug. And I was scrolling through Netflix and came across a show called Crime Scene, The Vanishing at the Cecil Hotel. And so I'm watching it, and, you know, it's interesting because it takes place in L.A., it takes place downtown, and there, yeah, I remembered some of the details of the particular mystery because it was very recent. It happened within the past 10 years. So I'm watching it, and because this hotel is located in Skid Row in downtown Los Angeles, they bring on a man named Dr. Doug Mungin, who is a Skid Row expert. And... I found it during the first episode that every time they cut to him, I was fascinated by what he was saying. Uh, it didn't help that I didn't find the show particularly interesting and a little vapid and substanceless, and that his was the most informative part of the program. It definitely helped his case. But I, you know, I, this is something that's very unique to Los Angeles. I had no idea. And there were other topics, other things that make this particular section of Los Angeles very uh, one of a kind, let's say, that I really wanted to get him on the program. I had to get him and talk to him about homelessness. And so that's what's happening. We are going to talk with Dr. Doug Mungin right now. I want to dive right into this, Doug. So first of all, thank you so much for being on the show today. Now, I want to get a couple things right, just to make sure I'm nailing everything down. So you are a communication studies professor at Solano, right? Yes, I am. Okay. And you, so you have two advanced degrees in performance studies? Uh, yes. Uh, so performance studies uh, covers kind of the performance of everyday life. Ah. Uh, so my specific field of study studies spaces. So the history, the political construction, and the um, kind of everyday performance of specific spaces. Uh, so that's how I got involved with Skid Row. So a lot of my work deals with kind of this historical construction of these conflicted spaces. So um, some of my work deals with towns in the old south uh, of Mississippi, um, kind of looking at it in terms of like an ethnographic lens and also kind of looking at homelessness in other kind of urban areas and looking at it through kind of a performance lens of this is how we perform these identities. This is how we perform this culture. This is how we perform these crises. Because I studied performance in undergrad, and it had it wasn't that serious. It was mostly putting on plays <laughs> and uh, breathing techniques and the repetition game. And I assume that that is completely different than what you did. Yeah, that's really funny. I'm actually teaching an oral interpretation class right now for performance studies, and I keep telling my students like, "This is the this is the fun stuff, but there's some really cool stuff as soon as you get into grad school when you're <laughs> like once you hit performance studies." 
Okay. That's really interesting. I, I love that distinction. I had no idea. I mean, the first time I saw you was on The Vanishing at the Cecil Hotel. And what, what made you stand out, is a couple things, at least to me and for this show, was that easily you were the most interesting guest. Right. I mean, there was there's a neuro uh, there's a neuropsychiatric professor, Dr. Ho, who was really interesting. She was smart. And then there was you. And then there was the manager of the hotel. And literally everyone else on the show was was aggravating or grating or, um, you know, kind of anti heroes <laughs> in a way. Yeah, so. <laughs> I was watching it with my wife and she was just like, you're coming off really well. And I think it's because you're being compared <laughs> to yeah. the others on the show. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so it was it was really fun. Um, actually, the filming of it, um, which happened like last year. Uh, after the interviews that we did, they were like, this is really good stuff. Like you should be prepared to get a lot of, um, awareness of your work after this. So, um, so I think I did a good job of presenting my work and really talking about Skid Row. I think that's what it's, what people were really interested in a honest take of this space where I think that we're all aware of it and we kind of know about it, but I don't think that there has really been a significant breakdown of what this space is and kind of the history behind it, because it's such a unique American story of Skid Row um, that I, that I think needs to, you know, really be told because I think a lot of towns and a lot of cities are experiencing what, downtown Los Angeles experienced 30 years ago, and they are making some of the same mistakes that, you know, Skid Row did um, early on. No, I think so. I mean, and we're going to get into your dissertation, which has a great title. You know, there's a Skid Row everywhere. This is just the headquarters. Obviously, you're talking about Los Angeles. Uh, I mean, it, it's great. I, I, there's a couple things I want I want to get to first, because, you know, you mentioned, you know, I, I mentioned actually that you're a performance studies major. You also did slam poetry in high school. Yeah. Is that true? In college, yes. I was actually the... Um, uh, hosted the San Francisco and Berkeley Slam. I actually ran the San Francisco Slam in the mid parts of the mid 2000s uh, and actually ran um, one of the top um, longest lasting uh, kind of vaudeville performance shows uh, based out of Oakland uh, for most of like my my early 20s, uh, early, like late teens, early 20s years. So, uh, yeah, so I come from a performance background um, and I yeah, and that's how I kind of view the world is through you know, different people, different identities all coming together, these like weird spaces and warehouses and whatnot, and how those cultures are kind of created. So, uh, and then that kind of led me down this path, you know, of, you know, doing this type of work. So while doing slam poetry, I was also um, on the speech and debate team in college. So I, I had my nerdy side and also like my artistic side <laughs> happening at the same time. Well, now hold on. I, I gotta, I gotta ask a couple more questions about this because I had no yeah. idea that there was a vaudevillian troupe in Oakland. <laughs> so, <laughs> so it's not really vaudeville. So it's a collection of kind of um, burners uh, who do this really cool, like vaudeville acts, so, like fire breathers. Um, you know, kind of like weird gymnastics. Then we had like battle rappers. Then we had poets. And it was a show called um, I hate the name of the show, but I think it's uh, it was from a very specific time period. And I didn't come up with it. Uh, it's called Tourette's Without Regrets, um, which is a show that still is lasting to this very day um, out in Oakland, and it's doing amazing. Um, the host of that show is actually Jamie DeWolf, the grandson of Elrod Hubbard. Did he inherit it from you? 
No, no, no. He started the show and I, I'm part of a long list of folks who've come in and helped him co-host over like the last 20 years. Oh, wow. That's so interesting. Wow. So that, I mean, that's fascinating. So when, when they, did they call you up for the Vanishing at the Cecil Hotel? Is that how you got the gig? Um, yeah, yeah. So most of my work is, um, was online at the time. And I, I think I really have like one of the only PhD, I mean, doctoral de- theses about Skid Row that kind of covers it in, in depth in this way. So um, they mm. called me to kind of talk about, you know, my research on Skid Row um, and kind of the modern creation of Skid Row. So I flew down to LA and did the interview. Wow. And, you know, in the this is my last performance based question. Um, but have you ever heard the song from Little Shop of Horrors called Skid Row? And yeah, um, yeah. Yes. What, what are your thoughts on that? <laughs> um, it's 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 a relic from a very specific time period. I mean, so the song was written in the seventies, nineteen eighties, about a very specific type of Skid Row, and I think that. Um, my kid actually is a huge theater kid and plays Little Shops of Horrors all the time. And I'm always <laughs> sitting there and like, that's not exactly Skid Row. And so I'm like, that dad. Um, yeah, he's like, so, shut up, dad. <laughs> and so I think that there's these really interesting, like, Skid, like I think that most people have first heard about Skid Row from Little Shop of Horrors. Um, mm-hmm. And so a lot of the media about Skid Row comes from like this early 1980s or it comes from like these newscasts of a very, I don't know, it's a, it's, it's an interesting <laughs> uh, bit of pop culture that leads in the skin row that doesn't really, it, it tries to cover it, but it, ha- it doesn't, it doesn't do it justice. <laughs> no, definitely not. I mean, it doesn't do dentists justice either, especially Steve Martin's portrayal. So there's uh, no, I don't think it does a lot of people justice. Yeah, or plant folks. I, I did a whole show on house plants. Doesn't do them justice. I mean, you know, Little Shop of Horrors could really um, be taken to task in this cancel culture. Who knows what would happen um, given the the sheer volume of mar- groups that it marginalizes. Um, and Skid Row is not the least of those. Uh, but so let's talk about Skid Row because you know I don't know how many people that you talk to um, have read your dissertation, but I, I found it fascinating. Uh, I mean, it is it is really very unique, and. I got to tell you, it reads, it, at least the beginning part, reads like a novel. I mean, it, it you know, it pops off right in the beginning. You talk about your family and, you know, how you got into an interest of homelessness. And you know, that that was very interesting. And the one thing that shocked me was, you know, not the stats and figures and all the blood, sweat and tears you put into it, because that was also impressive. But the sheer number of times you say the word shit in a doctoral dissertation <laughs> How did you get away with that? <laughs> what happened there? Well, I think it's really important that we kind of demystify kind of Skid Row and just the reason why we look down on these places, that there are legitimate, you know, bodily acts that are happening here. And so mm-hmm. one of the things I really wanted to do with my writing is be aware of it. I didn't want to kind of sugarcoat it. And so I say the word shit a lot, but a lot of it comes from uh, the theory by um, Christiva, who's talked about these spaces are, you know, these identities that we have in our culture where shit, piss, blood are all kind of mystified. Um, and we try to ignore them or we try to um, conceal them from our everyday lives. And so by actually coming you know, up to front with it, actually addressing these issues, 
we can actually address the issues of what's going on at Skid Row, specifically issues of sanitation. Um, mm-hmm. And so we, when we have these policies about sanitation, a lot of the times we try to we try to put words around it or we try to make sure that the general public is not kind of aware of what's really going on. And so actually addressing it in real terms, I think, allows for us to just kind of get to the heart of the matter. I don't know. I, I, I was really poetic. <laughs> I was I was really trying to be artistic with this dissertation and really kind of speak <laughs> to my experience of being down there. I think that, yeah. you know, doing the work there, you kind of have to get out of your 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 own head or your own kind of like academic mindset and really address the people and the conditions of the people in that area. Now, that makes sense. I mean, I will tell you, I don't know if there's any thoughts about publishing this, you know, for the public. But if you were to do that, I think including a lot of the stories, because it's clear by reading it that you spent a lot of time down there. But obviously, because it's a dissertation, you know, a lot of the pages are taken up with facts and figures and definitions and all that stuff, uh, which is interesting. I mean, interesting to people like me, but maybe not interesting to the general public. But I think you could sell this. I mean, I think it's I mean, I think you could really bring a lot of awareness to what's going on, you know, especially when we talk about your, you know, how you got into this. I mean, I don't know if you want to talk about how you got into the you know, just the, I don't know if it's advocacy or the interest in, in researching homelessness, but it comes from a very personal place, which I thought was really interesting. Yeah, yeah. So after I graduated college, I was doing a lot of work with nonprofits here in the Bay Area. And so a little bit about my background, you know, um, uh, my father, when I was uh, a week before being born, was shot by the LAPD. He was a, a manager at a jack-in-the-box and um, the cops came in, thought that he was the robber when he was the person who actually called, uh, accidentally shot my father in the foot, broke nearly every bone in his right, um, right foot. Uh, so the week before I was born, my father was in the hospital, you know, um, recovering from uh, his gunshot wounds. And so for most of my childhood, my father dealt with addiction issues and alcoholism. And it finally came to a head uh, later in life uh, where we lost our house for a period of time. And so we were suffering from housing insecurity. And um, during that time period, I just became, you know, because you're a young kid and you're living through that, you became uniquely aware of the conditions around you. You are aware of resources that are provided and are not provided. And so that really led me into, you know, my work as an adult of, you know, working in different nonprofits in the Bay Area. And so when I had a kid of my own, um, I hadn't seen my father in over 10 years and I wanted to reconnect with him. You know, I was an adult, you know, and I wanted to bridge or at least to come to grips with that relationship. And I found out he was living on Skid Row. And I started the initial stages of reconnecting with my father. And while there, um, I he, he was talking to me about Skid Row and why he still remains there. I was like, you have a sort of you have a job. You have a little bit of money in the bank. Why are you still living here? And he said, well, these people are my community. You know, these people I, I trust. I like living here. And it was at that moment I was like, whoa, this is really interesting. And the more I talked to my father's friends, they also talked about, you know, the conditions were horrible, but there was this weird connection that the people of Skid Row have to this space. And so that took me on this path of kind of understanding exactly what was Skid Row, what was the draw for people who to remain living here? And also, how did people end up here? Why does this place exist? You know, as a kid who grew up in L.A., um, downtown L.A. after night was a place you never went to. You know, we were all aware of Skid Row, you know, like that's where the homeless people lived. And that was just kind of it. We were just aware of the 
destruction of that place. And, you know, as a scholar at that point in time who was working about talking about space, doing performance studies, I really wanted to delve into why does this space exist and why are people drawn here? Why are why do they remain here? And, you know, and also the political mechanisms that allows for spaces like this across the United States to exist um, in this way, um, where there is such a lack of resources in one space, um, and why is there not anything done to fix it? Now, how did you? I mean, all all that stuff makes sense, and I, I mean that's all, that's a lot to absorb. I mean, having just really go, I guess your initial intention was just to reconnect with your father, and it really sent yeah. you down. This really sent you down a path. But yeah, I, I, I mean, I, I'm kind of curious. I know this sounds like a silly question, but I'm curious. How did you find him? It's not like they have addresses. I mean, how how does one go about finding someone in Skid Row? We're going to get to some of the numbers here, which I think are interesting. But there's thousands of people down there. Well, he was still connected to my my aunts, my aunts, and like he mm. would talk to my mom every now and again. And so it was just kind of up to me to just make that connection to reconnect. Um, so he was just kind of living like so. My aunts didn't really visit him. My mom never really visited him. Like, I think like they visited him like once every two years and he would mainly come and visit every like once or twice a year to my aunts for a special occasion. Um, but we never really connected. Uh, he was kind of out of my brother and my sister's life for a long period of time. And so it was just kind of making that connection and going down there to see him where he was at. Um, and I think that's what's really interesting about Skid Row. It's that, yes, there's a lot of homeless people there, but also there are a lot of people who are living in single room occupancy hotels, which are basically these apartment buildings with shared bathrooms, et cetera. And they live lives, they have jobs, they volunteer while they're down there. And so there's this part of Skid Row that's like abject homelessness, but there's also these communities of people who have had homes, not homes, but who've lived in these apartments and these um, and these SROs for years upon years, even decades. And that was one of the interesting parts about Skid Row, too, where it's like, oh, this isn't just about homelessness. This is there's a lot happening in this area in terms of just like of housing, of of government approved housing, of of shelters, of different forms of poverty, of poverty-induced housing. And so I think that was one of the really, not cool parts of the study, but of looking at homelessness is not just an issue of like people living on the streets, but there's different levels of homelessness that we don't really address in our society. Now, that makes sense. I mean, essentially, it's the entire socioeconomic strata that exists below the poverty line, really. I mean, and probably significantly below that. Because there are people, like, as you mentioned, your father was making money. There are people who have money. He had a bank account, obviously. But, you know, maybe couldn't afford an apartment because L.A. is hard to afford apartments in. It, I mean, it, it, it's it, there is an entire strata there. It's not just people who are homeless with nothing, which I, that was really interesting to me. And one of the other points here, if, I, if, I, if I'm remembering this correctly, so your father, he was actually sent to jail. Um, yeah. And when he got out of jail... They, you know, and this is part of one of the themes of your dissertation is that they kind of dumped him there on Skid Row and is basically like, you know, go fend for yourself. Here's where the resources are. And this is what happens a lot is it's not only prisoners, but, you know, people in in mental hospitals, mental institutions, uh, you know, all, all kinds of people who probably shouldn't just be tossed onto the streets. This is kind of where they end up. And that's what the community makeup is, which is interesting for a couple of different reasons. I mean, it's sad in a lot of ways. I've seen videos where you're literally watching a taxi drive up and someone with clearly with schizophrenia or some other problem 
is still in their hospital gown, still with with the hospital ID tags on their wrist, is just dumped out of a taxi cab and is left to wander the streets. Uh, I mean, it's incredibly sad. I mean, that that's first and foremost. But for most people, that's scary because the makeup of Skid Row also consists of incredibly dangerous people. And, you know, and I know that it has a bad rap, and I know you'll probably take issue with that, but that is a very real reality that people have to deal with, which is why you don't want to go down there after dark. Uh, and I think that that's, it's very tricky as an average person to kind of rectify those two sides of the same coin. No, I think so. I think, like, those two realities can exist. That one, that these are people, these are former, you know, like people who were part of our communities that we have dumped into this one area. But the second part of it is like also the conditions of that area allow for really horrible crimes to exist and to continue. And so, yeah, so both of those can be true. And also realizing that those crimes are happening to those people who live there, too. Um, right. You know, like that's also I think it's important that it's not just the outsiders who are, you know, being accosted and who violence is, you know, they're not who are being attacked, but also the people on Skid Row who have to live in that reality, too. Um, and it's scary. Um, and it's scary for a lot of them. And especially if you are, you know, if you're like in the case of my father and other people where you're dropped off in this area and then you're given a couple of addresses to go to, you know, it's it's hard to make that comeback. And so I think that's why you see a lot of the services there are connected to kind of Catholic charities that are connected to like the missions where they try to rebuild the soul in addition to provide the resources that, you know, if you, if you get lost in this place, it's easy to be lost forever. Mm -hmm. Um, And so that's also important to note that you have to work really hard to get out of that place. Um, because the conditions and the resources and just the infrastructure is not designed for you to succeed. And so you really need as much support as you can get in order to get out of there. No, that makes sense. I mean, it's very scary. I mean, in some ways, you know, metaphor that pops to mind is being like on the Grand Canyon. Like when you're above the Grand Canyon looking down, you know, that's a different perspective. But if you fall into the ravine and end up at the bottom of the Grand Canyon, it's very difficult to get back, to climb your way back out. And in a lot of ways, I feel like that. Like, if you fall off the homeless cliff and you find yourself living out of your car, living, you know, on the streets themselves, it, there, there's nothing really put in place to get you, especially not in our society, uh, to get you out of there. And that, that's that's terrifying, you know, especially for people who have kids, you know. Yeah, and especially because, like, obviously other infrastructures that were a part of your life have also failed. Mm -hmm. So in order to get to that level of homelessness, like a lot of bad things had to have happened Mm -hmm. in order to get to that point. And so believing in those same structures to get you out of that, it's very difficult also. And so you start to see people have a honest mistrust of the systems that are there to assist them also. And so, yeah, like to be homeless in America, it's, it's a scary thing because we don't necessarily have a lot of safety nets um, for people to, to to stop that drop. And also in order to get out of it, it's a really hard, perilous task in order to do so. Yeah. And I don't mean to jump all over there. I've got so much to talk about, but this everything you're saying brings up other things in my mind because, you know, I've got, um, you know, I, I live in, in Park La Brea, which is, it's in Los Angeles. And so it's this very structured community, which in some ways is, 
you know, the opposite, but also in parallel with Skid Row. So I want to, we haven't actually talked about what Skid Row is yet. Um, Cause I think the, you know, the, even the formation, the definition of Skid Row is really interesting. But what, what's interesting about where I live is there's a lot of talk about affordable housing. And so it's on the ballot. We just had uh, an election here with, you know, one of my neighbors is running for this board and, you know, very much into keeping, you know, apart, big apartment buildings out. And what's what's interesting is there's a need. Here's where I'm coming back to this. You know, we talk about homelessness in L.A. It's it's rampant, not just in Skid Row. I mean, areas that I live in, areas north of where I live in, where people are just showing up on the streets. It's very scary because those are telling those are red flags that there are bigger problems at stake uh, in play here. And so you have this homeless problem and you have people who are saying, oh, you know, these developers coming in saying we're going to build these housing complexes and they get the green light. And it turns out they're not building affordable housing. This isn't housing for the homeless. This isn't affordable housing. They're luxury apartments. So you're taking these subsidies. You're getting the voters behind you. And at the end of the day, you're not solving any housing crisis because the people who need the houses can't afford what you're putting up. And so this is, you know, a big, a big vicious cycle because you're you're not helping the community. In some ways, you're hurting the community. And because these are expensive apartments that not everyone can afford, and in LA, people like to live outside of their means, you get more people in, in more housing crisis. It's this weird, vicious cycle. I don't know if you've looked into that, but what you said made me think about that. Yeah, no, it's a problem that is existing in a lot of other big cities. I live in the Bay. I've lived in the Bay Area for a long time now, and in San Francisco, you see the same thing where there's more luxury high rises mm-hmm. that are being created and not affordable housing. And I think part of that is also because people don't want affordable housing in their area because it harms the real estate like your and so like so it becomes this question of what type of city what type of society do we want to have um where is the priority just kind of real estate prices or is the priority making sure that we don't have a large homeless population because those two things are uniquely connected so when people aren't able to afford homes they move to the places where they can afford um, and they move to the places that have those sor- those services. And so when those safety nets eventually vanish, um, there's no other place for those individuals to go. Um, there's this really um, unique study that came out a couple of years ago that shows that um, when individuals live, when, when mixed income housing exists in areas of high real estate value, those people that lived in that mixed income housing, they actually are able to find better jobs because we realize that networking connections, living in certain communities allows for us to have access to better resources. And so when you begin to create low income housing next to low income housing next to low income housing, we create these kind of these ghettos, these uh, economic ghettos in which Everyone around you has the same resources, but those resources are dwindling more and more until eventually you start to have blight in your area and you have an area that no one wants to live in or invest in. And so we start to see this kind of cyclical nature of L.A. real estate have a really important role in terms of our homelessness crisis and our poverty crisis right now. Right. No, and that makes a lot of sense. And, you know, downtown L.A. is one of the most contested areas where a lot of this is going on because, I mean, this is a I want to get to what Skid Row is because this is a a perfect segue. It is the only homeless community that's legally defined by a court of law. Um, It's the largest concentration of poverty in a geographic area. 
and it's the epicenter of LA homelessness. I took this all from your dissertation. The, yeah. And it has it has actual streets that mark what Skid Row is. I didn't know this until till I, I was reading your dissertation. But it's basically third to seventh. Now I live off third, way west of where this is. But when I go downtown, I take third in, and I remember it's just south of Japantown. And so there's never there's never any parking there. So I always park on Third Street and I walk up San Pedro or I walk up I forget what the other street is on the, on the east side. But I remember when I'd park my car and I would just look to the left and look just south. I mean just close I mean it's night and day. I mean literally night and day because you've got, you know, the like a Japanese heritage center that's well manicured on one side of the street. You cross the street and I didn't know this was looking into Skid Row, the northern border. But I mean it is just tents everywhere, boarded up buildings. And I mean, just it's, it's, it's just crazy when you see the night and day. And that's because that's the north side of it. And then it goes from um, uh, Maine to Alameda from west to east. It's a 10 blocks. It is, a, I mean, in, in some ways, it is its own city. I mean, there's like 30,000 people who live there. It's gigantic. This, I don't know, this was just a strange phenomenon to me. So, I mean, when you realized, did you know this was the case before you went down there? Like, how did you kind of come to this? No, I, I had no idea that Skid Row was this expansive. Uh, when I first thought of Skid Row, I thought it was just a couple of blocks. That right. This was just like a confined area, a couple of blocks that it's really bad. And then when you start to like really look at the issue, you start to realize like, wait, this has a structure. There's a structure here. There are borders that kind of confine this place. And then when you start to look into the history, you start to realize that, oh, and this particular midnight mission is at the heart of Skid Row. It's in mm-hmm. the heart of the Ben Block area. And all of these services start to spring up around it um, to provide support. And so you start to see that this was a created space. And I think that's the really interesting part of it, that Skid Row was an intentional space to provide assistance. And the reason why that space was like consist was um, um, exist is because a lot of historical and political factors of the late 1970s. So you have kind of the NIMBY movement of West LA and other parts of LA where um, uh, services for addiction and homeless services were being um, uprooted and a lot of communities didn't necessarily want that in their area. Uh, you saw, you saw um, with the closing of the mental facilities in the 1970s that a lot of, um, not necessarily group homes, but homes to provide care for people with mental issues started to spring up in West LA and South LA. And uh, you start to see more of those individuals in the streets and in those communities. And there became this this issue, this crisis of there are new people in our communities that are from these mental institutions that are from these um, rehab centers, and we don't want them here. Uh, but we have this place in Skid Row that already has some of these resources available. Why not just make that a service center for these individuals? And so Skid Row existed early on. Um, there's always been a skid row. So like there's been skid rows in Seattle. There's been skid rows in Chicago. It's normally a place where um, men in their 30s or 40s who are looking for jobs uh, go there. There's cheap housing. There's cheap liquor. There's um, a lot of kind of, you know, uh, uh, services for um, a transient group of people. And so there were already services provided in that area. And so they just expanded upon those services. Now, what they weren't expecting is for the other cities and surrounding areas to basically just dump, um, and for lack of the better word, the people that they didn't want in those areas to Skid Row. 
And then in the early 1980s, you have um, crack cocaine hitting um, South Central Los Angeles in addition to a really severe housing crisis. And so what was built to service a confined group of people that, and it was working early in the late 1970s, um, it exploded in the 1980s, and they weren't able to provide assistance or resources for such a growing population. And when the other cities basically closed up shop and didn't allow for those services to open, um, Skid Row just expanded and exploded to kind of the Skid Row that we have today. Um, And I think that's what's really interesting about this place, that this was an intentional space, but there was some good, um, there was a strategy, but because of these larger forces, um, it allowed for Skid Row to just become this, this, this service center ghetto that doesn't have enough services to provide for the people that live there. I mean, I don't know how, if, I mean, I think you, the numbers you have are 30,000. That was in 2015. I mean, it, yeah. that's, this is six years later. You know, we've had, I mean, we're in the middle of a pandemic that is, you know, caused a lot of people a lot of economic hardship. I cannot imagine that that number is not significantly higher now. I mean, 30,000, the town I grew up in had 5,000 people, right? I mean, the, the, this, the, the, the housing complex I live in right now has 10,000 people, which is twice as big as my hometown, right? And when I look here, that 10,000 people is a lot of people to service. 30,000 people. That, that so are, it's 30,000 uh, 30, for L.A. County. For L.A. Um, County. Oh, at, oh, okay. For L.A. Okay. County. And so about 25% of that live in Skid Row, which is still substantial. Yeah, I mean, it, that's just less than 10,000. What's it, like 8,000, something yeah. like that, right? So, okay, so so that's fair. Okay, that, so that's a big reduction. But 8,000 people in a 10-block radius where they need essentially everything provided. Be it, I mean, maybe you know whether it's a warm bed or three meals every day, whatever they need has to be provided. Jobs, I mean that that's a big infrastructure to to take care of and to to into, you know to fund and I mean that's there's a lot going on there. Yeah, yeah, and so and that's kind of the problem because it's ten blocks and it doesn't really have space to expand, and so you have downtown LA which is very strict about their borders now because they don't want a skid road to expand into the other parts of LA. And then on the east side, you have East LA, you have the LA River um, that separates skid row from uh, East LA. And then you have kind of the garment district and all the other areas of downtown. And so there's really nowhere for it to go, but you have more and more people piling into this area. Mm-hmm. And so um, right now you're starting to see um, the outskirts of LA County um, a lot of these services begin to pop up in the outskirts of LA County, kind of like the where the um, um, I'm trying to remember the place. Uh, so kind of like the uh, Palmdale, Lancaster, Mojave Desert areas. Um, you're starting to see um, uh, more services in those areas and more kind of low income housing in that area uh, as a way to uh, as a way to lighten the load in a way um, from Skid Row. Well, I mean, it's it's tricky because you have so much going on. So I remember, you know, I remember there's this video game called L.A. Noir, and yes. it's uh, it's I, I love that game because it takes place in the 50s. It's very, you know, it's very noir film. You know, I think it's actually the late 40s, early 50s. You know, it's a, it's a very film noir video game, and it takes place most of the stuff. I don't know if you've ever played it before, but most of it takes place in downtown Los Angeles. 
And yeah. I was, and I'm playing it, and I'm looking around. You're driving in these old cars, and I, you know, even though I was not alive or conceived, nor were my parents <laughs> in the 1950s, I had this sense of nostalgia for just how beautiful downtown LA was. And when I go there now, it's amazing to me when I I look at the same the same landmarks that were in that video game, and I look at them now, and they're. I mean, just destroyed. I mean, decrepit, you know, uh, I mean, just absolutely run down. And I think to myself, I do like the idea of revitalizing downtown L.A. because it's the only city I've lived in where you no one wants to go downtown. And there's something, you know, there's something about having a vibrant downtown area. The trick to all that is, is Skid Row is right in the center of that. And, you know, and, and it, it, you know, it raises these, these really, you know, you raise them in your dissertation as well, these interesting questions of, well, what do you do with the people who were there? They don't have anywhere to go. They, you know, this is where people, as you meant, as, as we mentioned, this is the assigned area where the resources are, where they're supposed to go, where they're, they're supposed to live. Wh- what do we do against the gentrification of the area? What, what, what is the right answer? And I think these are very tricky questions that when you start looking at each side, each side in some ways has their own agenda, and it's difficult to get lost in the rhetoric. But I think it is a very difficult question, even if you consider both sides of this. Well, and I think it's also important to realize that it's still nostalgia, that even in the 1940s and 1950s, that there were still these SROs still there. There was still a skid row in, in, in its infancy still there. Yeah. And so I yeah. And so even our images of downtown L.A. as like this great urban center are 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 kind of hidden or it's a myth. Uh, that that place never really existed, um, because even in the 1950s, they were still hearkening back to the L.A. of the 1920s. And so a lot of that 1950s nostalgia is nostalgia for a bygone era of the 1920s and 1930s, when L.A. had a very vibrant transportation system and everything flew through downtown. And so and I think that's part of the problem with Skid Row now is that we we are consistently trying to reimagine downtown Los Angeles um, as a place that existed when it never did exist. And so it hampers our ability to kind of look at this area as a and as an area of the future, as an area of like, well, what are we trying to build this area into? Because we're consistently trying to take it back to another era where we start to see that the policies of that era led to the situation that we have now. Um, that this kind of confining of certain people to certain blocks, we realize that people are going to leave those blocks, that people move, that these are transient individuals, that this issue of homelessness is not going to go away just because we move it to another area or we refuse to acknowledge its existence. And so there has to be an, a clearer effort by LA and other cities to actually address what is the root of homelessness. And part of that is housing, part of it's education, and it's a larger issue to discuss as opposed to just how do we make downtown clean again? No, and, and I think that that's really fair. I, I mean, I think it also uh, it, it speaks to the issue of trash, which you have an entire chapter on in your dissertation, which I thought was really interesting. But before I talk about that, I want to go back to something that I thought was interesting that you mentioned earlier, um, and I want to come back to it. You know, we talked about how, you know, this is – 
the people who are living there are in some ways can be are very dangerous in some ways, or at least there's a lot of unknowns, more unknowns than you would see in in, in other places. And this is kind of it goes back to to the vanishing at the Cecil Hotel because that entire what's funny about that story about and really quick it's about a woman named uh, Eliza Lamb who's coming here as as a tourist ended up at the Cecil Hotel which is right in the middle of Skid Row a lot of these single occupancy. Um, people live there. She disappears, and then she's found. I think this was in the news. I don't want to spoil anything, but she, she's found. And what's funny about the entire documentary is for the bulk of it, you are wondering if someone from Skid Row killed her, what they did with her, whether she was, you know. And it turns out that's none of that's the case. <laughs> like yeah, You could have exactly. eliminated, you know, it's a four-part series, easily told in one episode. I That's crazy. But at the end of it, you realize, well, none of it, it's all crazy. Like, you didn't even need to be on the show. <laughs> no offense, <laughs> right? Because because none of that's relevant. But yeah. w- but what's important about that and what's interesting, and you mentioned this earlier, is that that stuff can happen in Skid Row. You can have murders. People can disappear. You talk to someone in your book who hasn't seen his brother and is pretty sure he died unmourned, unknown, in lost in Skid Row. And that's scary. Not to bring up another video game, but there's a game called uh, Batman Arkham City, which is about this walled-in section that is just crime-ridden that Batman has to go and clean up. And that's what Skid Row feels like. I mean, it is Everything as long as the as long as you don't leave the borders and the cops police the borders and keep people in, anything goes and you can have people die. That in some ways is really a scary concept. Um, I mean, how did you? Were you looking into some of this? Did you have stories of people talking about this? Because this is a pretty big issue. Uh, yeah, yeah. Actually, um, I'm working on my book right now, so um, that's going to go into it. And what's interesting about Skid Row is that a lot of the early books about Skid Row only dealt with the crime issue, and I think it's because there was so much of it that um, Skid Row, it's a dangerous place, so you have drug dealers, um, a lot of drug dealers in that area. Um, also, you have the issue of sexual assault. Um, right. Sexual assault is really huge in Skid Row. Um, the reason why – and so shelters are great, but also if you are a woman or if you have a family – they're incredibly dangerous places. Um, a lot of sexual assault happens in shelters. And so a lot of women prefer to live on the streets because they feel safer there or in other areas. And so Skid Row has become this area where the forgotten are are allowed to kind of live banished in a way um, where their conditions, their lives are often forgotten. Um, Many of these people end up in kind of pauper cemeteries in LA. And I think it's really important. Like I know that a lot of my work wants to humanize this, the the individuals that live here in the community and, and bring up some of the positives, but also there is this really dark underbelly of Skid Row that it is dangerous for the people to live here, that there needs to be a change in how we look at it because there are way too many people who are being harmed every single day. There's so many Elisa Lambs that are living out on the streets of Skid Row. And unfortunately they don't have the resources um, to get help. And I think that's really the travesty of Skid Row that we've basically created the space where people can die and we don't, care, um, where they can exist in these horrible conditions and we get upset that they exist. Um, and we forget that these were members of our own communities, that these are members of our own cities that, and I think that's the part of it that's really 
it's it, it it takes a lot out of you kind of doing this work. Um, and I think that's why there's such burnout with social workers in that area, too, that there are some amazing people who are doing some amazing work there. But it also it can burn you out if that's all you see every single day. Without question. I mean, it's it's scary because I imagine some of that is hidden in the demographics of Skid Row. Like, I don't know what the male female you know, percentages. Are. It's predominantly black male. And when you say predominantly, we're talking like over 80% or? Um, about, about 50%. 50. Okay. So half. Yeah. 50 and over 50 and over. And I think that's also the problem with Skid Row too, that, um, it's known as kind of a place where, you know, of older black men who are poor. And so you have that kind of stigma against it. And a lot of the nonprofits in that area, they do a really good effort of like putting like women and children on their on their postcard, you know, like on their magazines right, and like right. their fundraisers and stuff, because yeah. it's as, as a as a 40 year old black man, it's real. I can tell you, like, we're not really like the most uh, people are not willing to give us that much money. Um, but, you know, just in terms of kind of the demographic breakdown, though, I think that also is a huge part of it. No, that makes sense. Now, when you say so this just hit me. So when you say 50 percent, I mean, in the world, 50 percent of the world is male. Right. So so yeah. um, are you mean 50 percent is black male specifically? And that's not just. Yeah. OK, OK. Yeah, because because what what I'm trying to get to is just how many females live on Skid Row. And that I mean, if it's you know, if you're talking 20, 30 percent. That is scary. I mean, that is I mean, that's even I mean, now we're talking about even, you know, populations that that even are, are, would have more to fear living there. Um, it's just really something to think about. You know, one of the things, you know, you kind of you kind of hit on this, and I want to make sure we talk about this, is this idea of, you know, what is the, the refuse of society? Like, wh- what are we getting? What is the trash of society? And in some ways, as you mentioned, the, the overlying belief, uh, or at least the stigma is, this is where we throw our human trash is on Skid Row. We dump, we're dumping prisoners there. You know, prisoners are notoriously difficult to employ, um, depending on their crimes. Uh, you got the mentally ill, which are running around. Um, and, and they're, it's hard to predict what they're going to do, especially if they need to be on antipsychotic medications. People who have, are not contributing, uh, contributing to the economies of society, uh, you know, in a capitalist society, we consider that useless, right? I mean, they're, they're a drain, not, a, not an addition of resources. And I think this definition of trash is, you talk about it in the book, this is really important in how we define people and things because that stigma doesn't go away. And if we consider people to be garbage, you're, you, you, I mean, we throw garbage in a dumpster and then forget about it. And that's, you know, those are, you know, chip bags and, you know, old cartons. We never think about them again. That is a very bad attitude to have, and obviously, when in relation to people. So how did you kind of use this as a metaphor, uh, and a very powerful metaphor, I think, to talk about what's going on on Skid Row? Yeah, and um, I think the reason why I wanted to use that metaphor is because I think for a long period of time, we've been using that type of rhetoric to describe issues of homelessness in American society, dating all the way back to the 1920s, 1930s, uh, when we started to see an increase of homelessness in American urban centers, uh, that we started to see this kind of equation of of being poor or being homeless to a deficiency of character, of a deficiency in like, you don't want it, um, you're not working hard enough, or this is just who you are as an individual. And so therefore, 
the resources that we give you is going to are going to be minimal. Um, we are going to give you um, a lack of resources, or we're going to make you really work for this harder than someone else. And so, dating all the way back to the 1920s, 1930s, we start to see this kind of formation of this like ideology in a way. And then you have these instances during like the Dust Bowl, such as the bum blockade. Right. Um, so right in, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So in the 1930s, California. L.A. County literally <laughs> usurped California and set up their own border patrol to stop people from Oklahoma and Arkansas from entering into the state um, because they viewed them as like insufficient are, are not people that were worthy enough to live in California. And so this kind of metaphor of trash, I think, is really important because we start to see that we begin to dump things. Uh, we dump people in places. We dump services that we don't want in our areas into other places. And so it's a powerful metaphor because I think that it's speaking to our situation bluntly that we live in a society that we are allowing people to die and live in these horrible conditions. And why do we do that? And it's not because, uh, and it's, there's something deeper there. And I think it's because there are certain actions, there are certain people that we don't want in normal, polite society. And we don't want to see those people again. And we do the same thing with trash where we put it, we put a, we place it somewhere, we take it outside and we don't, address it. Um, someone else will clean it up for us. And I think that's what happened with Skid Row, where it's like, if we just place them in Skid Row, someone else will clean it up for us. There will probably be some volunteers that can help out, but we don't want that close to our home. And so trash becomes this metaphor of, of, of kind of the ways in which we build our cities, that we are okay with having places to dump people that we don't want. I mean, it's almost like Skid Row is a landfill in a way. I mean, that's, you know, and we're looking to build over it. To put it bluntly, I mean, yeah. yeah. Yeah, to put it very bluntly, I mean, yeah. It is crazy. I mean, so there, there's the metaphor, which is really powerful. But then there's this other, I mean, a more literal version of trash, which I think is important because it ties into all of this. I think you mentioned in, in, in how just the stuff that people have, like the literal stuff that, you know, each person on Skid Row has, whether it's in a shopping cart or, you know, their, the, the place where they've set up, their tent, their, their items. That, uh, I think that in 2012, there was um, an idea, uh, an idea for the, of LA to beautify Skid Row and to start cleaning it up and make it more hygienic. As you mentioned, you know, people are doing their, you know, going to the bathroom, they're bleeding, all these, all these unsanitary conditions for people. The idea was to clean it up. And you talk about how people's stuff, their, their items would just be, if they weren't, if they weren't with it, if they'd gone to, to the bathroom somewhere else, or if they had just left their cart unattended, it would be taken and thrown away. And as yes. you mentioned it, as you mentioned it, it kind of humanized what was going on there. And I thought about that. Um, because this is one strange issue that, that I have, this is one of these very conflicting issues with me, because when I see the thing that annoys me the most about a homeless encampment, it's when the people leave, there's just garbage everywhere. And there is no way that is stuff that they own. It's chip wrappers, whatever. And that stuff, when there's a lot of people that are 
disrespecting the environment or their area, that makes me, as a person driving through, saying, well, if you're not going to clean it up, I don't want to see your garbage all over the streets and in the in the drains that drain out into the oceans. So there's this idea that, like, okay, I understand and you should have your stuff respected, and I'm on board with that. But on the other hand, not everyone follows that and, and litters and, and pollutes the area that they're in. That's hard for me to rectify, and, and I know that's probably not a, a popular opinion, but it's where I am. No, no, no. And that's, it's a valid opinion to have, but also it's like, where are the resources to dump that trash? Um, are there trash cans around? Are there sanitary places around for these, in, or for these people, or for these encampments? And normally there isn't. And a lot of encampments, they try to clean it up, but in a lot of it, you are correct. There's a lot of trash that's still there. And it also kind of speaks to what services are provided for some and to others. Like our for us, we we have designated spots to put our trash. Um, there's designated spots to put our waste. And when you are denied those designated spots, what do you do with it? Um, it's kind of like if you were to go camping and for more than two weeks, and where do you put your trash if you went camping in the woods for two weeks? Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, like yeah. that's, yeah, like you can have trash cans, you can have trash bags, and then where do you put it if you have nowhere else to go? Um, if you're not able to use anyone else's resources. And so you kind of see this kind of primal existence. And I think that's the part of it that it's it's jarring for some people that this is a way of living in our modern society that it's primal, not prime. I'm not calling the individuals primal, but I'm just saying the way of life in order mm-hmm. to exist, it's a way of life that we are not familiar with at all. Um, there are things you have to do in order to survive that it's different than surviving in our everyday life, if that makes sense. No, that that's very true. I mean, it is in some ways primal. I mean, it goes back to, you know, I don't want to say our caveman days, but the days where you had to live off the land, um, except the land in this instance is a city. You know, I mean, it's civilization. Yeah. It's not living in the woods. It's not, you're not a hunter gatherer living in a cave. I mean, you have to live on the streets where people around you have stuff and you don't, and you have to make do. So that makes, that makes sense to me. Yeah. And your, your communication is going to be different. Like who you bond with is going to be different. Um, and yeah. And so like, I think that what we are observing, it's kind of what happens to a breakdown in society when you still have urban centers, but you have a breakdown in the access to those centers or to infrastructure. How do people, how are people forced to live when that part of society breaks down? No, that makes sense. Um, but, but you know, that's an interesting point because one of the things that I notice, okay, this is, so when I was a kid, I didn't have a lot of money. And so, I, I mean, I, I got a job early. I got a job at 12 years old putting baseball cards in order to buy comic books, right? That was my, that was my first job, okay? And so when I had stuff or when I got a really cool Christmas present or whatever, I, I treasured it, right? Like, I mean, I wasn't yeah. going to get another one, you know? I mean, some kids I knew had a lot of money. They didn't care because they would just – their parents would buy them a new one. That never happened with me. So I always really treasured, took care of my stuff, right? And what's interesting is that mindset – when I think of like some of these neighborhoods, I think of what goes on in those neighborhoods. If you don't have a lot, right? And and this is and I, this is more of a question because you know more about this than I do. But this is what I'm thinking. When I think of some of these neighborhoods, because one of the things that when I look at a neighborhood and I see graffiti in places, I hate mm-hmm. graf- I hate graffiti. That is a, the ultimate disrespect of your neighborhood, right? Like if you're going to spray paint 
on other people's houses, that's an immediate symbol that there's either gangs in the area or there's some, you know, there's it's a disrespecting of the area. That is going to make people not want to go there. Uh, and the same is true with like there's garbage and stuff everywhere. All that stuff is how the neighborhood looks. And you could have a skid row where it's just like a shanty town, like in, you know, in other places where it doesn't have to be that way. People can appreciate the resources that they have because they have nothing. So anything should be nice, right? I don't know if that translates well. That may be a completely off the wall way for me to think, but that I think that what's that's what surprises me the most when you have nothing to disrespect even that which you have. Does that make sense? It does. It does. And I think that there are different situations. So not everyone on Skid Row is the same. Um, right. You, like there's different conditions there. I think that's important to note. And so um, going back to kind of the the trash situation in, in property. So on Skid Row, most people have shopping carts. And if you leave your shopping cart alone, uh, there was a period of time where the LAPD would confiscate shopping carts because they considered it a trash um, and your belongings to be trash. And you left it alone for more than five minutes. And therefore, they can confiscate that because you don't own the shopping cart. And so therefore, everything in it is trash. And so you have that component of the classification of trash. But also, you have to also realize like there are other I like to think of it in terms of, of trash and garbage in this way, that in a lot of parts of America, uh, in deep rural areas, you would go drive through a town and uh, there would be kind of shanties. There would be really broken down apartments, broken down houses, mm-hmm. um, messed up cars in the front lawn, yeah. um, just kind of trash you know, strewn everywhere. Yeah. And for those environments, you start to realize like, well, the infrastructure isn't designed to assist that, you know, where um, if there was better trash collection, if there was better this and that, then there will be access to that. And so you also have to look at it in terms of access, like what are we allowing access for? And so if I can't even get a bathroom to defecate in, where, like, so at that point in which, like, even my own waste, I have to have a deep consideration about it of where I'm going, if I can be arrested for it, I have to hide while doing this. There aren't any spaces to do this. Like at that point in which I can barely deal with my own waste, what am I going to do with this waste that's around me? And I think that's a part of it too, where there becomes this moment of talking about trash and talking about waste that we realize that access is a really key issue. And if we are able to give better access, does that go away? And I'm not necessarily sure um, if we've actually given the access to solve that problem yet or to answer that question, if that makes sense. Yeah, well, I can give you an example. So here in, okay. in LA uh, on Highland, there's, uh, there's uh, it's strange, on Highland and La Cienega here, there's a lot of homeless encampments that are showing up in, in like the Hollywood area. And so there were some porta potties that were put down there. I, I, I don't know if it's for the community, but there is no construction going on in the area. And I do know that there are some communities that are putting them out for the homeless to use, right? Yeah. And, and I, think that's, I think that's great. When I drove by, right, graffiti all over them, you know, doors are open. Uh, there's, I mean, there's, there's very little consideration that is given to those porta potties now. I'm surprised they're not tipped over, to be honest with you. And I think yeah. to myself, well, if you have a place to go, right? If you've been, if you've been going in an alley, uh, one of my friends lived in a neighborhood where a guy just went on a palm tree, right? That's, I mean, uh, and I understand that, and I, I'm with you 100. percent There should be a place for that. But if you're given porta potties, 
there should be some sort of community support to keep those in good working condition because if you don't, you will end up back in the alley going. At least now you have a place where you can go that's relatively private. And so when I see that, it, it, and I'm not saying this is true of everyone, but this is, this is the, I'm just giving the argument of what people are up against, as if you need any more. Yeah. But, but, the, yeah. but you're up against this thing where it's like, well, it looks like people have tried to help, and you've basically you know, taken a dump, no pun intended, on that help. Why would you get more? Why would you put more porta-potties to, you know, to tag and to leave open and to, you know, you, you know what I mean? Like that, that's the tricky part yeah, of it. Yeah, and that's, that's a tricky part of it. So like there's a couple of different issues there. Um, like one, yeah, you're absolutely right. And number two, there's probably people in the community that have tried to clean it up. Um, I know that um, in the encampments here in Oakland and Berkeley, um, there are concerted efforts every single day to clean up the encampments. There's like little groups within those encampments that go around, check in on everyone, make sure that everyone's clean and has um, kind of the sanitary materials that they need. And so like you have those communities and encampments. And then in some encampments, you have people who are just really down and out or who are suffering from some form of mental illness, and it's harder for them to to keep up with the sanitation efforts. And so, like, that's another part of it, too, that not everyone in the encampment is has the same kind of cognitive ability or the neural are 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 dealing with the same issues. Um, and so you might have some people who are not you, you know, some people who just are not ready to kind of live in that environment um, and, and to clean it up, unfortunately. But also it kind of goes back into the, well, we've given you a handout. Why aren't you able to do the best you can with this one handout that we've given you? Mm -hmm. um, and I think that's also the problem with our, our current issue with homelessness is like, here goes a handout and you better use this perfectly or else you will never get this again. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. And and I think that's unique to homelessness, where it's like you're only given one shot and you better make the world out of this one shot. Uh, and because of that, like as soon as we see a homeless community or a homeless person not take the utmost advantage of that, we then kind of penalize the rest of the homeless community for that. Um, for that issue. And we kind of can see it with like when we give money to a homeless person and we, we demand that they buy food with it um, or to, or we demand our homeless people to have signs that say that they are willing to work and get a job. Um, and so there's this effort that we have in society of like forcing this ideal kind of character uh, on a homeless individual. And it kind of goes back to that. We, we consider homelessness a character deficiency as opposed to kind of like an economic position, right? And so like if we think that they are bad characters, then obviously like they deserve to live in these kind of environments because obviously they can't clean it up for themselves. So therefore we have to kind of confine them into these areas. No, I think that that's, that's actually a great point. Uh, I, I mean, and even to counter my own argument, I mean, if I was if I was homeless and I saw these brand new porta potties put in, and some guy you know who's talking to himself and screaming and punching the air, or a guy who's just got out of prison decides he wants to tag it or leave the door open, I don't know that I'm going to say anything to him. <laughs> so, so yeah, and then like, and then someone comes up to you and is like, "Why aren't you keeping your community clean?" Right, exactly. Like, I have no control over this community, uh -huh. um, and so like that's also a part of it too that there are different levels of people who are homeless, and that means like there's a lot of resources that 
it's a complex issue that needs a lot of resources, but we try to have these one quick, like this like one-stop shop fix for, for social and mental conditions that, that most of us are struggling with that we, we need multiple like resources for, but we are unable to acknowledge that there are different people that need different resources in the homeless community. No, th- that makes perfect sense. And I mean, the other thing, just, to, you know, from, from an optics point of view, I mean, I can't tell you how many people, you know, in Hollywood Boulevard are either young or they're, you know, like, uh, they're not runaways, but, you know, people who, who are, are young and they're just out there panhandling because they don't want to work, you know, which is a yeah. totally different situation than people who are down on their luck or had something bad or had an addiction problem that they need help for. Um, and I think that really, or the people you see on the corner who, you know, they, you know, they have a sign, um, you know, don't have any money. And then you go on that same corner five minutes later and they put the sign down and they they're counting their, a big wad of money on their cell phone, you know? So there's, there are these scams that are going on that are really hard. It's hard to suss out who needs versus who doesn't. And I think that turns a lot of people off. And again, it's one bad apple ruins the, you know, ruins the bunch. I, I don't think that's true of everyone. As you've mentioned, you've made some great points that I think are they're 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 worth making because the, people have to think that there are other things going on and that that situation does not represent everyone. But you only make the this is true of anything. You only make decisions in life based on your experiences, and that's all you can yeah. do because that's who we are. Well, and also I think that we we point out like that one instance of that person who's making a lot of money while panhandling. And we ignore how many other homeless people we passed, like on that same street, mm-hmm. if that makes sense, yeah. where it's like we we spotlight that one person and we don't acknowledge like the five other people who were just kind of like sitting on the sidewalk that we just did not acknowledge at all. Um, and so I think that's another part of it, too, where we it, it's a problem that becomes invisible. Um, that we we don't acknowledge another human being that's kind of in peril next to us because one it makes us feel bad and number two it's like well I can't save everyone um, so what what the hell can I do and so I think that's also part of it that in our culture that and especially in our urban centers that we've allowed for these conditions to remain in such a way that we become desensitized to it and and in a way we become hostile to the people that are trying to take advantage of it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I I find myself falling into that into that trap, and and I try to I have to consciously get myself out of that trap. And I think that that's a nat. Unfortunately, it's a nat. It's a natural human, um, in, in inclination. You know. Yeah, and it's hard. It's hard to have that much empathy all the time. Um, <laughs> like for number one, and number two, it's it's just really difficult to deal. This is a really complicated topic. It's a di- it's a very complicated issue, and there are people there who, you know, chose the wrong choices and who are homeless. And then there are people who are homeless for, you know, for matters out of their own hand. And, and unfortunately, we, we try to kind of provide this moralistic sense of homelessness. And we have to break away from kind of like looking at homelessness as a moralistic act and figure out exactly why is the richest country in the world? Why do we have so many homeless people? Why do we have so many homes and why are people living on the streets? Uh, and once we finally figure that out of just like, all right, we need to just address this core issue of just like get people off streets, get them to homes. And then we can start talking about mental health. We can talk about job training. We can talk about all of those other things. But until we make a concerted effort about housing, 
um, this crisis is just going to continue to grow and we're going to have these same conflicts and grow even more and more where it's going to happen. The same thing that happened in the 1970s, where we had this influx of people entering into West LA, entering into kind of like the Hollywood area. Uh, and the people who live there are upset by this. And then another skid row is going to pop up somewhere, um, somewhere else in L.A. to deal with that new population. To be homeless is a traumatic event. Um, and it changes the way you think about the world and it changes you physiologically. And so even if we address those issues of uh, those core issues of what got them into homelessness in regards to kind of depression, alcoholism, addiction, schizophrenia, et cetera, that we also need to address the other mental health crises that have occurred because of the act of being homeless too, of the things that they had to see, the things that they had to do in order to survive. And so there needs to be better wraparound care just in general for American society. I think that we're realizing, especially with COVID, how important mental health is and how it impacts almost everything that we do. And, and I think that more mental health resources need to be devoted to this specific population in order for this to not occur again. Um, that there needs to be a concerted effort. It's it's up to us to figure out if, if we are okay with having a skid row. And I think the answer to now is, yeah, I think we've been okay with having a skid row. We're now upset because we're now seeing it explode and enter into other areas. But I think that until we make a concerted effort for this to never happen again, we're going to continue to see this occur not only in LA, but in other areas. We're starting to see it up and down the West Coast right now. We're starting to see it in the Midwest. We're starting to see it in rural areas that there is obviously an economic and mental health crisis in this country that is going unaddressed and people are becoming homeless because of it. And we need to do something about it. I think that that's very well said. I mean, I, I think the thing I would add is that this is kind of one of the symptoms of a capitalist society. I am in no way anti-capitalist, but these are every society has issues, and this is when you when all you care about is money and someone's ability to generate it, and then you want to you take the least amount of resources. I think this is an inevitable situation because not everyone is going to be able to survive. Uh, you do need those social nets. You do need people helping other people, um, and I think it is a complex problem. Uh, but you know, despite the fact that I'm the analytical mastermind and you are the world's leading expert on homelessness, I don't think we're going to quite solve the problem today. <laughs> but we've done a we've done a great job no. putting a dent in it. Uh, but where can people get in touch with you? I mean, I, I don't know. You are, do you have any more appearances? Are you um, are you doing uh, social media? Where can people find you? Uh, yeah, you can find me on social media, Dr. Doug Mungin. Um, I also have a website, uh, drdougmungin.com. I'm on Instagram. Uh, my book should be out hopefully by the end of this year, early next year. It's going to delve into Skid Row. Uh, so taking some of the work that I've been doing there, the interviews, et cetera, and really delving into the topic and also having some uh, uh, prescriptive uh, chapters, too, of what we can do to kind of fix this issue um, in regards to Skid Row and make sure that it doesn't happen again. So. Uh, yeah, so I'm all over social media now. My wife has been helping me uh, get with that. I have a newborn child, so I've been really slow <laughs> with everything 
uh, this past month. But yeah, that's where you can find me, Dr. Doug Mungin, uh, Instagram, Twitter, and on my website. Well, by the time she's two or three, she'll be able to take over your social media accounts. So don't worry about that, <laughs> if I, the way things are going now. So I will have, I'll have links to all of that on the website and make sure that everyone can get in touch with you. Well, this has been a fascinating discussion. I have been extremely interested in homelessness and Skid Row. I mean, it's such a fascinating historical part of not only Los Angeles, but of the United States. And it is amazing to find someone who is the foremost expert on Skid Row. And all you had to do was write a dissertation a few years ago, and you you got that distinction. That's how few people are, are investigating this. Uh, but Dr. Doug Munchen, thank you so much for being on the show today. Oh, thank you so much. And I want to thank everyone for listening. Have a good night. Fascinating Nouns is a Glencoe production and is hosted and produced by me, Daniel J. Glenn. The show producer for this episode was Sarah Brandt. The Fascinating Nouns introduction was produced by Daniel J. Glenn and E.A. Barrientos with music and sound design written and performed by E.A. Barrientos. Now, if you like the show, you've got to subscribe. You can find us on all the major podcasting platforms, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, Stitcher, and Spotify. Like, review, rate, all those things help the show. And if you don't know how to get a hold of those particular platforms, you can find everything you need on the Fascinating Nouns website, fascinatingnouns.com. We've got our entire library of previous episodes, all kinds of information on the guests, and of course, you can follow us on social media. You can find links to our shows, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, Pinterest, and YouTube pages, all at the bottom of the Fascinating Nouns webpage. And if you like this show, you're going to like everything that I do. Go to danieljglenn.com to find out more. Thank you for listening. And transmission.